Hello everyone, welcome back to Tales from the End of Times. I'm Ivan Agnosulautiris, a lead researcher on the project Crisis of Leadership in the Eastern Roman Empire 250 to 1000 CE, a project funded by the Australian Research Council. I'm here today with a new guest, Dr. Ashley Bacci, Assistant Professor of Jewish History and Ancient Mediterranean Religions at Star King School for the Ministry in California, United States. Ashley will help me discuss the Sibylline Oracles again. We did some time ago a podcast with Peter Edwell, my colleague on the project on the Sibylline Oracles, but Ashley wrote this fascinating book in 2020 on uncovering Jewish creativity in book three of the Sibylline Oracles, Gender, Intertextuality and Politics, a book published by Brill that won the Borsch-Rast Book Award in Lectureship, and therefore it gives us plenty of uh, reason to go back to the Sibylline Oracles, review that episode that we did some time ago, and add new perspectives as they've come out from Ashley's recent book. So before we start, let me summarize what we said some time ago with Peter in that first podcast. Sibyl, we said, was first introduced by Heraclitus in the 5th century. We hear of several Sibyls in classical antiquity, including the Erythraean Sibyl, who allegedly predicted Alexander's victorious campaign in the East, and the Sibyl of Cumae in South Italy. The Sibylline tradition acquired renewed influence from the Hellenistic period onwards, when numerous prophecies originating among the Egyptian Jewish community were attributed to Sibyl. This is where Ashley's book focuses on, that's what we will be talking about later today. A major preoccupation of these prophecies was the demise of the Hellenistic dynasties and later the Roman emperors, events typically attended by natural disasters, wars and widespread suffering. In the Jewish Sibylline Oracles, the emperors are always portrayed as self-serving and tyrannical deviants. Taking start from Ashley's book, we will go back to Hellenistic Alexandria, examine the role played by the Jews in the huge community that lived in Alexandria, how integrated they were in the social fabric of the time, and what role they envisaged for themselves in the political games of that period. As we go along in our discussion, we will also tackle important models of female leadership, strong queens that fought for the prosperity of their people and brought about periods of peace unlike their male equivalents. We will also discuss the poetic aesthetics of the Jewish community in Hellenistic Alexandria and how they felt completely at ease with the new set of poetic principles introduced by Callimachus, principles that spoke about small poetic forms against the model of Homer and Hesiod. For all of that, please tune in with me and welcome Ashley Bachi to our discussion. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here. So, yes, the Sybil is one of my favorite personas to talk about, and there's a lot to unpack even from your summary. So I'm looking forward to this conversation and this back and forth today. Of course. So since I already did my summary of that first episode, why don't you tell us more about your book and especially about the themes of book three of the oracles that, you know, those elements that appeal to you that made you think, okay, there is a book here for me. 
Yes. So I'm a classicist in training. Um, my background in classics and art history, archaeology. And I thought I was going to be a classicist. And then I realized that I was wanted to focus more on history and myth. And I one thing led to another, and I ended up getting a master's in cultural and historical studies of religion, focusing on Jewish and Christian texts. And that's when I was introduced to, um, I discovered the sibling oracles. And when I read book three in particular, I was feeling all of these connections that I saw to other events that I knew as a classicist and assumed that They've probably already all been written about, and um, because Not so. of <laughs> yes, so because of the boundarying of our fields and this kind of concept of this falls under Jewish studies, this falls under classics, this falls under history, and this kind of ways in which we boundary ourselves from one another, which really limits our lenses. I looked into the scholarship on book three, and I realized that they'd primarily been examined through the lens of Jewish history, looking from before to the Hebrew prophets and earlier Jewish literature, and then later Jewish literature, looking to rabbinic, potential rabbinic connections, and that there had not been a sustained effort from the looking at it from ancient history and from classical literature, just kind of the overview, you know, so the, the very clear connections. And so that's why I dived right in, uh, because I realized that sometimes it can feel in ancient history like everything's been said and done. And this was a space for me to make my own voice heard and to put connections in to show the intersectionality and the complexity of Jewish identity and how they were really reflecting engagement with wider Hellenistic discourse um, so that they were a part of that discourse, not outside viewers or spectators of it, but active participants and creators within Hellenistic poetry, as well as commentators on politics of the time, especially. So book three, I date to the second century BCE. And I really connected ways in which the Jewish authors were inspired by all of the strong female leadership that was happening at the reigns of queens, Hellenistic queens, across the Mediterranean. So not just the Ptolemies, but the Adelids, the Seleucids, all of these kingdoms all had very strong queens. And their reigns really lasted longer than that of the kings. So um, How usually, interesting, yeah. Yeah, mm. usually they were kind of two, three, sometimes even four times the length of the kings. And so they were really the consistent leaders to the people. And so we see in the Hellenistic period that there is an uptick in the literature that's focused on the female voice. We see that there's increased access to education for women and girls. And overall, there is just more representation of women with power at various different levels of society. So that's something that's very exciting about the Hellenistic period in general. And why I argue the Jewish authors chose the Sibyl as their pseudonym, as their prophetic voice. They wanted a female voice to help balance the primarily masculine male prophetic tradition. That's a kind of a core aspect of my book. Mm -hmm. You kind of answered my next question, which is, you know, which aspects of gender 
you tease out in your book. And it's really interesting because most of the time when you hear about queens during the Hellenistic period, it's always passed on or presented as a kind of interruption of tradition, as an one-off, an exception. And of course, by the time you hit Cleopatra, you know fully well you are in for all this misogynistic rhetoric that, you know, she is the danger to the Roman Empire. She is the arrogant queen that charmed two of the Roman great politicians, Caesar and Mark Antony, so on and so forth. But she actually comes from a long line of strong queens who fought and secured prosperity and peace for their people considerably longer than their male equivalents. So that's really a powerful message to put across. Can I please take you a step back and ask you to summarize which are the main events that we come across in book three of the Sibylline Oracles? Like, apart from the presence of the uh, queens in that book, what else is happening that affects the Jewish communities so much and they feel the need for strong prophecy, for something to reassure them for their future? Yeah, so the second century is a period of a lot of transitions. There's a lot of boundaries that are getting redrawn across the Mediterranean. So, for instance, by 170, you have the Sixth Syrian War with Egypt being divided, this kind of internal battle between Ptolemy VI Philometer and the younger brother, Ptolemy VIII, Ugertes. And in particular, their sister, who is married to Philometer, who is Cleopatra II, my favorite queen. Um, <laughs> yes, oh, most people, when they hear Cleopatra, it's always Cleopatra VII, but most people don't know that she's the seventh. And there are many other strong queens, more than six, actually, uh, strong Cleopatras, and then also the Arsinoes and the Berniques that were really influential. But in this particular second century context for Jewish people, Judeans living in Ptolemaic Egypt, this divide, this kind of struggle between these two brothers and their sister was particularly important because Ptolemy VI and Cleopatra II were known for having very good relations with the Judean community. So we have evidence, archaeological, as well as writings of papyri and other things that show that there were Jewish generals in their armies. There was a temple at Leontopolis was being built at the time. There's a very comfortable relationship between those two rulers and then the Judean community. And that is threatened, obviously, by the presence of the other brother who yes. wants to take over the power, isn't it? Yes. Ptolemy VIII, also kind of referred to a nickname as Fiscon, kind of a, a <laughs> fat one, so it's kind of a... was not looked at very nicely by the intellectual community as well as the Jewish community. And that's because he really exhibited tyrannical behavior. There were many murders that happened. Um, some have classified them when looking back into history as potentially pogroms. I don't like that language. I think it's too heavily centered within the modern context and really looking at it as the Jewish community being targeted just because of religious views. And I don't think that was what Ugertes was doing in that case. He was also targeting intellectuals. So we have this mass exodus that happens in the second century when Ugertes is in control, where we have the kind of a lot of those that were associated with the museum leaving and mm. going to other centers in the Mediterranean. But part of that intelligentsia that has the struggles, the Jewish communities are part of that. So I think that those are often 
kind of discussed separately, but are one and the same. So that how they're on, that's an integrated network. So within my writings on book three, what I do is show how traditionally the scholarship would look at book three and see that there were sections that were clearly Jewish. They were have these very clear resonances with the Hebrew prophets, their own kind of retellings, but very rooted within that prophetic literature. And then they were these other sections that were seen as kind of, quote unquote, too Greek or mm-hmm, pagan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to be Jewish. But we knew they were written in Hellenistic kind of the words chosen, other indicators that it's clear that it was written in the Hellenistic period. And they were kind of pigeonholed as paraphrase, paraphrase of lost, quote unquote, genuine Sibylline prophecy. So uh, there was this real bifurcation of the Sibyl's identity within book three, as far as the scholarship goes. It would be, there's kind of the genuine Jewish sections, and then there would be these these parts that are like Jews that are paraphrasing these lost fragments that are put in this text in order to hide that they're Jewish. So it was this kind of subterfuge. Uh, We wanted to, it's being included in order to look Sibylline, right? So what it's doing is that's very much rooted in these biases about Hellenistic Jewish identity, about their education, about their ability to uh, feel comfortable in expressing their views within polytheistic terms and a lot of other assumptions. So what I do is one of the critiques of these kind of paraphrases is that they're close to what we have from some older texts. So there's, there's, and But there's these small things that they get wrong, these kind of tweaks to the narrative. And the reason that they're wrong has traditionally been just dismissed as, oh, well, they just got it wrong because they're Jewish. So they just didn't know any better. So I look at those in particular as the openings for what's really going on here. And through close examination, I tie those changes in narrative to the political discourse of the second century, as well as to Hellenistic poetic trends that are going on. So ways in which the Jewish authors then, or the Sibylists, are kind of critiquing other poets of the time, as well as having their own kind of, letting their own political views be known. In other words, they have their own agenda. Yes. Aesthetically, but also politically. And these are conscious choices that they are bringing to the tradition rather than, as you said, the usual interpretation, oh, they didn't get it right because probably their Greek wasn't good enough or something along these lines. Exactly, exactly. Now, you already mentioned that the choice of Sibyl was because the authors wanted to kind of challenge the Jewish tradition where you typically have male voices and wanted to present instead of the usual male voice someone who spoke with a feminine persona. That in itself indicates tension, a gender tension. Would you like to say a bit more about this gender tension and how the Jewish community of the time perceived that? Yes, and this is something that's continue to evolve for me. I was just at a conference, actually, Mm. in Naples, Mm -hmm. a big conference on the Sibylline Oracles, where we had scholars from all over the world come and, and talk about the many iterations of the Sibyl. And in those conversations, I think I've become more aware 
of the outside imposition of the tension and the issues of canonization and them being centered on canonization. So what we have of the Hebrew Bible, of the prophets, that represents, yes, a very masculine tradition. And that's what I engage in from the kind of canonized material in with my book on book three. But what recent studies have been showing is that most likely there was actually was more of a feminine presence within the Jewish tradition during the canonization process. And so although the Sybil, yes, I would stand by, is being chosen specifically because these particular Ptolemaic Judean authors were looking for a female voice of prophecy, particularly one that was going to be using epic hexameter verse. So I can come back to the reason why for that. So Greek poetic. Greek poetic, Homeric meter. Um, meter. Okay. Um, and that being, they're having reasons for that. But also this was part of a wider context, just like with the, you know, influence of the queens, you know, politically mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the literature where we're seeing more female voice. This also happens in other Jewish literature. You know, we have Judas, we have the Greek additions to Esther, we have the Susanna narrative and uh, Daniel. Still, some of that literature is preserved. But we're also, there's been some great studies showing how the Miriam tradition, you know, as Moses's sister, which is a kind of a later designation, that tradition was a lot more robust than what ends up getting canonized. So I'd like to think now more about the civil being chosen within a more robust tradition of feminine representation when it comes to voice and the prophetic, as well as leadership. That's often been lost and we're lucky that the Sybil actually has remained for us to examine, but can be placed within that wider context, I think is helpful too. That's a really good point. Thank you. Now, you already, we've been talking all this time about the Jewish community of Alexandria. This is Alexandria built by Alexander the Great, becomes a great capital later under Ptolemy, competes with Athens. It's the new cultural center of the Eastern Mediterranean, goes without saying. But this is also the Alexandria of Callimachus with a museum, the House of the Muses, the first sample, the first model, if you want, of the modern university. So I, as a classicist, would understand why the Jewish community would want to compete with a Homeric model that was coming out of the museum as the epitome of Greek literary output. Because in the museum, that's the place where Homer and other important classical works are copied down and taught to the students that flock to that place. For the Jewish community, being the cultural other if you want, the third party, not the native Egyptians, not the settling Greeks, but the other, often described as a buffer between the Greeks and native Egyptians, being part of the intellectual scene, surely they would want to put forward their own canon, their response to the Greek Homer. So you already mentioned that. Would you like to say a bit more about, you know, how does this play into the choices that the authors of the Third Sibylline Oracle make? Yeah, so, and I want to just provoke a little bit of what was mentioned in asking that question, Mm. which is this assumption of default other from the Jewish community, which again is, I think, very 
there is something to that, right? So we're talking about a minority religion within a wider, but we have a lot of modern baggage, particularly post-World War II, of this kind of envisioning the ghettoization or this kind of separation of Jewish communities as being something that's always happened throughout time. And that's not the case for the ancient world. So there are Judean communities all across the Mediterranean, and they're very integrated. So I would say that, yes, they're representing a minority religious view, but there's been too much, I follow my mentor here, Eric Gruen, I think there's been too much emphasis on the otherness that is very rooted in kind of modern ways of thinking, and that we had many other minorities from the ancient world as well, different minority identities, but because they don't have a continued existence, it's easy to either forget about them or to kind of put them in the background. They're not as tactile as when you think about Jewish communities because there are Jewish communities today. So we feel like we know them in a way that we need to decenter a bit and kind of get away from our modern expectations of identity, but reinvigorate the complexity of that identity. Because I think these are very complex, intersectional identities that Jews are, they don't see themselves as not Greek. They are Greek. So that's something that I also talk about in the book, that they see themselves as Greeks. And the difference that's happening as part of the cultural fabric. Yes, is that they see, well, the way book three functions, which is a bit different than some of the later books that have a more pessimistic tone. Mm -hmm. Book three really does see that still has some what has been framed as apocalyptic elements, but still has hope. And that hope is still figured within a mortal human figure, so a kingly figure. And we'll get back to that later, but which later is kind of put concretely within the Christian sibling tradition as firmly within the encasement of the divine. So that coming only through direct divine intervention is there, will there be change? That's a bit different for book three um, within the second century context. But also the authors, these Jewish siblings see the Greeks as lost brethren, really as almost kind of these siblings that are fortunately are misguided (laughs) by their false beliefs in this kind of polytheistic realm. They really have been allowed themselves to be fooled. And book three really gives many examples of the way in which I see it as a conversation between of, of saying, yeah, sometimes we've gotten it wrong too. We've made some mistakes and had to kind of get back in line with the one true God. And I see that as hope. That's hope of redemption, of Greek brethren being able to become awake from these distortions. And that's where we get this kind of critique in Homer, right? So getting to the Raphael Cribore's work on education for the Hellenistic period, which is amazing work, such a recent and unfortunate loss for the community in, in her passing. But she does an amazing job in showing the educational model, but in particular, how hexameter poetry was the foundation in all levels for the educational model. So if we think about how hexameter poetry was able to reach a wider audience that also dovetails into 
the desire for the way in which the Sybil ends up getting framed within this kind of hexameter poetry, right? Because it has a larger potential for a wider audience. Let me interrupt you one minute here because not everybody I suspect in the audience will figure out the hexameter, what that meter is all about. And I'll go now into my first year, teaching first year students mode and say, Hexameter is that meter that you come across in Homer, 16,000 lines in the Iliad, 14,000 lines uh, and a bit in the Odyssey, where it goes da 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 like six times a long syllable da followed by two shorter ones, da da. So da da da. Six times, 15,000 times. But the way they use the meter, the pace, and the way you have specific words fitting certain descriptions make it stick to your mind. The way they use specific adjectives to describe, for example, the rosy-fingered dome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are certain expressions that they are repeated time and again. So it's easy to transmit that poetry and even remember thousands of verses because of the way it is put together. Exactly. And I suspect that this is what appeals to everyone in the Hellenistic period and they use it as the basis of their educational model. And therefore, when it comes to prophecies about the future and dealing with the existential fears of the communities at that time, it's the perfect vehicle. Yes, because it can reach a wider audience because you don't have to be the elite of the elite to understand hexameter of poetry, because that's what you would have been, even if you have the entry level in Kiklios Paideia, mm-hmm. you're going to be learning on the Iliad. You're going to be learning on Homer. And so you'll be learning your letters, your numbers, and then sentences. You're going to be memorizing these things. And so you're going to be able to tap into yes, that. Yes, tap yes. into it in yeah. a way that you're not going to be with us some other styles of poetry or writing. And so what is happening in the Hellenistic poetic trends and this kind of literary, yeah, you're right, you mentioned before, it's kind of like the beginnings of our university kind of culture, is that this is a book culture for the first time with this. So it's not just that the the scholars there, the writers are not just reading Homer, but they're analyzing Homer. They're trying to create commentary um, traditions, yes, commentaries, and also textual editions of what's the best edition that we have. And meter is another way in which we that helps us know if all of a sudden it doesn't follow the meter, then we know that there's a problem, right? And so this is another activity that's going on in the museum. And so we see that Hellenistic poets. They, in their own ways, critique Homer and Hesiod by creating their own poetry. That's um, usually the style is not to do long, you know, kind of these long pieces, short right? to do forms. Short, shorter forms and work on multiple levels. So there's kind of the surface reading and then there's these kind of intertextual references that are to texts like Homer and Hesiod, but also to more contemporary texts, as well as engaging with politics and kind of current events. And so those more nuanced levels of understanding, that is the way for you to stand out with all those other poets going around. And that is why Kalamakis, in particular, I show in my book, the authors, the Sibylists of book three, are actually trying to one-up Kalamakis, um, mm-hmm. just like they're one-upping Homer, because they're showing that they're just like any other 
Hellenistic poet at this time. They're trying to show their street cred, as it were. You know, um, I've introduced this to undergrads before as these kind of rap battles that are happening. Um, mm. So you can picture Hellenistic poets in the museum trying to get the king and queen's attention so that they get maybe a little cushier of a situation. And it's like, yes, how is my poetry better than that poetry? How is mine show that I'm more learned, really taking advantage of these resources? I'm able to slip in these really coy and really nuanced jabs at one another. And you have to be this intelligent in order to really get the full grasp of it. That's the style of Hellenistic poetry. And book three is an example of that. It is participating within that competitive literary discourse that is not something that is in itself very Greek. (laughs) It is very Hellenistic. Now, that's fascinating. Let me rehash what you just told us. So basically, following now, you say Kalimakos, I follow the modern Greek pronunciation Kalimakos. Kalimakos it is. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. (laughs) Tomato, tomato. (laughs) Tomato, tomato, that's fine. So Kalimakos is the first one in Alexandria to say, look, we admire Homer. We love Hesiod, who also writes epic poetry after Homer, but we can't compete with these guys because they've been fantastic. And whatever we write is just going to be a cheap imitation. Why don't we just use some of their words? Why don't we try to be really smart and ask the audiences to guess how well we know Homer and Hesiod, but we're going to take all this vocabulary and we are going to write sharp, short poems that bring in obscure allusions and ask you to really, really put those gray cells at work to figure out what on earth it is that we're trying to say. And most of the discussion is about subtle political jibes and, uh, you know, critiquing everything and everyone in a very dangerous environment, because if you are a court poet, well, you depend on the favor of the king, correct? Yes. And you basically, you are saying that in writing and composing the third book of Sibylline Oracles, the Jewish authors behind that book are following, are applying Kalimachian principles, trying to say that we are as good as you are at the museum, we can compete with you and we can do that in the name of one of the pagan oracles. Yes, yes, absolutely. Fascinating. she's not pagan anymore. She is, all of the traditions about her and her gravitas Mm -hmm. remains, but now she's made the daughter-in-law of Noah. So she's there before the kind of diverging of cultures. And so she would still be there at the Trojan War, you know, a witness. She can still be kind of all over the Mediterranean for wherever she needs to be. But they're clear in saying that in her denying the other constructs, genealogies that have been put forth about her and saying, people think, people say that I'm this and that I'm that, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm the prophetess of the one true God. And it's my words that have been kind of altered. So that's the confrontation. Because of the pagan deception. Yes. So she puts things straight, right? Yes, she's. that's the big thing. So for instance, there's this section where she talks directly about Homer. Mm-hmm in book three. And the symbol of book three says, Homer copied me. 
So she is the originator of hexameter verse. It's not Homer, but actually it's Homer that has copied her works on what happened at the Trojan War and inserted this false focus on false gods and on these mortal heroes that elevate them almost to divine status, Mm -hmm. right? So in that critique is actually the critique of the hero cults and of the pantheon. So this falls within the kind of monotheistic or monolatrious mindset of the Judean authors. So acknowledging, I would say it's more monotheistic than monolatrious. So monolatrious means that you acknowledge that there are other gods, but that you choose choose one. one. But I think that book three is really reflecting this, actually a monotheistic viewpoint in that there's an acknowledgement that others believe that there are other gods, but the authors don't, I don't think, are very clear about how there's those are false gods. So they're not actually real gods and that it's actually because of humans. There was this person that wrote this work, The Sacred Record. His name is Euhemerus of Messina. It's a third century BCE work where he makes the gods mortal beings. There has been scholarship about asking if this is the first atheist kind of a literature of the ancient world. That's difficult because it's such a modern concept. But it does lead to this association, a pre-existing literature in which the gods have been made mortal and where the theogony and the kind of Titan account has already been rewritten as Zeus and Hera and the Pantheon being the first mortals rather than as being divine beings. And that they were then later understood and worshipped as gods, even though they were not gods, they were just kind of the first leaders, the first kind of standout leaders. So this the is a theme that you also see in the yes. civil and so oracles. We have Yes. So basically, this is not just a critique to Homer, but also to Hesiod, who was the first one to write about the Titanomachy as a major challenge that Zeus had to go through before establishing his kingship in heaven. Now, I really like that because the Hellenistic period is really known for the time that the kings demand cult while they are alive. Mm -hmm. So they are not dead heroes or dead ancestors or something like that, Mm -hmm. but they actually receive cult as divine beings or beings that are closer to gods and they command their favor during their lifetime. And it is in the Hellenistic period that you have this serious blurring of lines between who is a grand, if you want, mortal, and who is divine. So basically, if I get you right, the Book of the Third Sibling Oracles is trying to say, is trying to follow on this tradition and say, you got my words wrong. You had Homer writing about great heroes that claimed immortality. You had Hesiod writing about the Greek gods and how they came into power. But that was all pagan deception more or less like the kings we currently have Mm -hmm. and they demand cult. I'm going to show you who the real God has always been. And of course, this coincides with Yahweh. Yes. Does it make sense? With the one true God, yes, yes. Okay. And what I think really stands out to me about book three versus the other books that we have remaining of the Sibylline Oracles is, again, that there is critique of empires of 
kings of everyone, right? So, and there's still hope that the mortal realm can reform, as it were. So this hope in the seventh king, which I argue in my book is envisioned as the child that was murdered of Ptolemy VI and Cleopatra II. So Cleopatra II had a daughter, Cleopatra III, who ends up being married to her uncle, Ptolemy VIII, the problematic one. And Is uh, any of them not problematic? <laughs> I wonder. Um, well, I tell my students that if they were interested in Game of Thrones, that the Hellenistic period has everything but the dragons. And so I think that there's, yes, we could say that all of them are problematic And there's ways in which what we know of different personas, I think, is really taps into something that I think could be really inspiring, especially when it comes to the powerful queens around how to get things done. And ultimately, although they've gotten in general a bad rap of kind of these kind of murderous and seductive kind of women. Threatening, uh, causing instability, blah, blah, blah. That actually, their reigns are see a lot of stability that we don't see when we're looking at the kings. And I think that there's a lot of works that they do for the good of the people and for especially for women at different levels of society that hasn't been examined closely enough. And that could be really influential in dialogues today about women in leadership. But getting back to for book three and how they envision this kind of a change occurring is that they don't have to have it as with the later Christian sibling tradition as Jesus as a Messiah figure coming, but as this mortal ruler and within the context of the dynastic kind of feuding that happens. But Ptolemy Eighth Ugartes or Fiscon, he kills not only Cleopatra II's son, Ptolemy Seventh with her first husband, with her brother on Ptolemy Sixth, but then later kills the child, the son that she has with him, with Ptolemy. So there's two male children that he really murders in very gruesome ways. If we are to believe the accounts that we have in the literature to really traumatize and put Cleopatra II in her place, um, which both times does not lead to what he's hoping and does not lead to her yielding, but rather leads to her further resistance to him. And so she does actually rule Egypt alone. She kind of chases him, Ptolemy VIII, out of Alexandria for a while. She rules. She's the first queen to restart the regnal years, actually, to just say, we're really done with that guy. And then when he is able to kind of recapture and she leaves for a bit into exile, he ultimately is unable to rule with Without her, and he cannot get the people behind him. And so he has to reconcile with her. And when they reconcile, it is made very clear that the terms of that reconciliation are for her to have equal title with him. So she is also a pharaoh. She is one of the Horuses. She is, you know, that. So the titles are exactly, and they institute a cult, a dynastic cult for Ptolemy VII, for the lost son. Wow. And it's not clear whether that cult is referring to her son, you know, which of the two. Mm -hmm. I think they're really conflated into one. And there were different conspiracy theories, you could say, that were going on from earlier in the reign. So that some people really believed 
that the, her child with her first husband was not murdered and that he had been whisked away. And so there was a general at one point who said that he had that missing son and tried to start a rebellion and helping Cleopatra II against the Eighth. That rebellion failed. So there were these circulating rumors that were really held hope that this son may still exist. And I think that that son was a beacon of hope for not just the Jewish community, as I was saying, but Ptolemy VI and Cleopatra II had a really good relationship with the Judean community. So, of course, their child and that leadership would be viewed as another heyday, potentially, for relationship of the Jewish community, of the Judean communities integrated within the Ptolemaic Greek community with representation there at the highest levels within the military as well as in, within literary circles. So I think that that son would have been that to them. And then we also have references of how that son would have been really lifted up in other communities within Ptolemaic Egypt for various other reasons. So we do have this installation of a cult which previously had not been brought into the conversations of the identity of this kind of mortal messiah figure in book three. But I think that I've made a pretty good argument bringing in some archaeological resources as well as textual resources that help make that argument and place, again, within the Judean community as really looking to Cleopatra as a strong, Cleopatra II as a strong ruler and her son as bringing in the type of reign that Cleopatra II and Ptolemy VI offered before all the dynastic politics really came to a head. A solid leadership model with strong female input. So thank you very, very much, Ashley, for this fascinating explanation of second century BC politics and how the Jewish community put a strong claim of who they were, as you said, absolutely integrated into the fabric of Hellenistic Alexandria and basically what role they aspired to play in the political game of the time. How they brought in Sibyl, someone with a feminine voice, to put things straight, to explain the pagan deception, if you want. Yet, in their monotheistic perspective, it was a mortal king who would lead the people to that period of prosperity and peace. And of course, we also touched upon that very interesting topic of how each of us work in silos, and we don't often discuss the interaction of Greeks and uh, Jewish communities in the Hellenistic period as something that is absolutely natural and expected and normal during that time, but we often address our separate audiences, and this doesn't really give out an accurate picture of the melange of the cultures that existed and of the rich interaction between the two. So with your analysis of the third book of the Sibylline Oracles, for the first time we see a strong, confident Jewish community participating in the intellectual life of Alexandria, even critiquing Homer and Hesiod in ways that you would expect we've seen from Callimachus, but, but this time with a novel perspective and a strong cultural claim. Exactly. So, Great summary. Uh, well, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. I do hope our audiences enjoyed that as much as I did. Thank you once more very, very much. 
Goodbye from Ashley Bachi and myself, Evan Agnosulautiris. Until the next time I find a victim to grill and bring <laughs> to this table to discuss some fascinating aspect of ancient existential fears and how people in antiquity dealt with that. Thank you very much.